You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I'm your host, Kyla Lee, and today we have a very special guest, Cash Heed. Cash, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Kyla. It's uh, great to have you uh, (laughs) right here with me. Now, you're interviewing me instead of me interviewing you. I know. Tables have turned here. (laughs) Um, Why don't you, uh, I mean, obviously, I know about your background. You were the Solicitor General. Um, You've done all sorts of amazing things. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what you've done and how you got to be where you are today? Well, you know, Solicitor General, I'd like to move back from that simply because uh, that was not the shining point in my career. It certainly was not the capstone of my career. Uh, It certainly opened up my eyes as to why we have certain laws here in British Columbia and what some of the policies and the reasons why policies come to fruition here in British Columbia. And it would be a surprise to a lot of your listeners and not as much of a surprise to others. But prior to that, I spent 31 years in policing the bulk of my police service was with the Vancouver Police Department where I went up in the ranks as superintendent. Some of the high profile commands I held with the Vancouver Police Department were around gang enforcement and drug enforcement, drug policy, having a contemporary policy. I took a lot of criticism simply because I was doing things outside of that traditional paradigm on what we needed uh, to do, especially around the drug issue when we talk about supervised injection site. I remember writing a report on why we needed to try uh, a, a site in Vancouver and boy I received so much criticism from law enforcement officials and even people within my own department. And now people are so in favor of having those. Oh uh, it makes total sense but you know you got to understand what uh, well I think you do Kyla you're, you're, <laughs> you're involved with this a great deal as a, a defense lawyer and realizing how police operate and really the public would be surprised we think things are done for the right reasons but often they're done for other reasons. And I was a chief of police in West Vancouver. I was bored in West Vancouver. It's the most affluent community in all of Canada. Mm-hmm. Not much happens there. And I've just left uh, a high-profile command in Vancouver. I was, uh, you know, shortlisted for the chief job in Vancouver. Unfortunately, a lot of politics played uh, into this, and uh, I was not selected. And so within 48 hours, I accepted the chief job in Vancouver and left uh, Vancouver to West Vancouver for a couple of years. And then went into politics. Okay, but when not a lot happens in a community as far as like policing goes, what does happen in a community relates a lot to traffic. So you absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That's the bulk of the officers' work in those particular areas. So officers can be very assertive in their traffic enforcement. Others can utilize what I call common sense. Yeah, <laughs> common sense is a large part of policing, I think, and I don't think a lot of people appreciate that. Well, it is, and you know, you'd be surprised how much discretion is given to the police officer, and that's inherent in the criminal code in Canada. The the officers operate under that discretion. All parts of our justice system operate under that discretion. If that discretion was not there and it was black and white, the whole system would absolutely collapse. Okay. Well, 
using that point of discretion, I'd, I'd like to sort of pivot our discussion to something that's been in the news lately, which is the 10th year of the Alexa Awards. Um, as you know, those are the awards given to police officers for issuing 12 or more uh, discretionary roadside prohibitions for alcohol-impaired driving. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Do you think that's good? Well, let me just back up a little bit because I'm quite familiar uh, with the unfortunate uh, tragedy that occurred in uh, young Alexa losing her life and, uh, you know, the family trying to deal with the tragedy there. Shortly after I was appointed Solicitor General, I met with uh, Alexa's mother and father and we talked about uh, the tragedy. We talked about what we could do to increase road safety here in British Columbia but to deal with impaired drivers. There was some difficulty simply because the criminal justice system was overwhelmed and there had to be some uh, more expedient and efficient and effective way to deal with some of our impaired drivers on the road. Not, not those uh, impaired drivers that absolutely should be dealt with under the criminal code, that there's, there's no way you're going to deal with them administratively. So I remember talking to them and talking to the superintendent of motor vehicles at that particular time, uh, Steve Martin, and we, we talked about looking at impaired driving a little bit different. Looking at impaired driving, you know, realizing there's that 24-hour prohibition, uh, you know, if the police officer suspects, at that time it was suspects that you had been consuming alcohol and they could issue that kind of to deal with it, you know, send a little warning to you. Mm -hmm. and, and get you off the road. The important thing was to get the individual that was driving the motor vehicle and the officer had reasonable ground to believe uh, they were impaired off the road. That's what right. we wanted to do so the uh, person would not uh, carry on with their behavior. It was not meant for financial reward for government. It was not meant to severely penalize an individual because the officer, as I mentioned earlier, has that discretion where they could proceed by the criminal code. So we developed uh, a, a bit of a policy within government. I remember taking it up uh, to uh, you know others within government uh, and talking to them about it. And uh, what people wanted to know is what the penalty was. And these are these are elected officials right. wanting to know what the penalty was. Well, that wasn't the reason why I uh, wanted to put this in place. Coming from a police background, seeing the tragedy on our roads, yeah. I wanted to deal with it in more of an effective and efficient way. It was not to generate revenue for government. It was not to severely penalize the individual because we had the criminal code if we wanted to go through uh, under uh, the laws here in Kent and, of course, make, to ensure we do not breach charter rights. So how did it go then from your desire with it to the, you know, what they marketed when it came out, the severest penalty in all of Canada? Well, at that time, the government, and you got to understand how government operates, <laughs> everything is done with a political lens. And that's my disappointment. You know, I was told prior to going into government, this is the way it's done. But I thought, you know, I could come in and say, look, let's just do it for the right reasons. And that's why we developed this policy. And what happened at that particular time, uh, the, the questions that were asked were, how much would it cost us? Can it generate any revenue? Right. Not, how many lives can you save on the roads? How many people can we get off the road that are driving? All of those issues that are paramount 
to the citizens in British Columbia. So we went away and we did some estimates based on some of the fines. It could possibly generate over time 12 million in the first year up to 20 million going forward. Wow. Well the lights went on. The lights went on and uh, we said okay that's a possibility however that's not the primary reason we want to do this. Mm -hmm. Well then, you know, there was some shenanigans over in Victoria and uh, the file kind of got removed from my particular hands and sure enough, the uh, legislation that was developed did not have what we said had to be put in there is some type of review that could be done if in fact the officer on the road that issued that um, was not correct. Some type of appeal process had to be put in place. It just could not be arbitrary. Right. Nothing in this law, the, the law of the land, the charter, says it cannot be arbitrary, detention and seizure. It, we, we know that. So that was clearly said that, you know, whatever we do, it, there has to be some appeal process for the individual in there. And we know, Kyla, because you have looked at this, you've been in front of all levels of court with respect to yep. this particular problem is they did not grant that appeal process or something that is a reasonable appeal process. No, even now. And then we found out, again, I was in a different position, that police officers were not exercising common sense. Yep. People call it discretion. I call it common sense. Okay, we had officers that were just arbitrarily pulling people over, uh, making them blow into it, not even having reasonable uh, grounds, not even having suspicion for these individuals. Just the fact that their car was parked in a parking lot of a licensed premise. They thought they had the grounds to uh, say, okay, blow into this particular incident. We know the argument that the uh, the, uh, the courts have had here in Canada regarding uh, roadblocks and whether or not they can make that demand simply without any grounds to do that. Well, I'm one to tell you is the officers have to have their grounds to do it. They cannot arbitrarily ask you uh, to do this particular thing. And, and that's been back and forth in our court process. Right. Well, then do you think that rewarding police officers for issuing a certain number of these encourages them to make that not common sense decision, encourages them to avoid using their discretion in a useful way and instead, instead encourages sloppy police work? Well, I, I'm not going to say sloppy police work, but uh, unnecessary police work. And, and let me just give you my experience. When I uh, became a police officer uh, and we were given a quota, right. we had to write okay. so many traffic so tickets. <laughs> yes, we had to write so many traffic tickets a month and so many check cards okay. a month. We know those two issues are very controversial. So... I would never meet my quote on traffic tickets, okay? <laughs> Simply because I was from the school of thought is if I could change the driver's behavior by just talking to them and pointing out what they did wrong and the serious consequence of their driving behavior would be better off than giving them a ticket where they have to pay or they have a couple of points. Right, denunciation so, and specific deterrence. Absolutely. So what happened when the end of the month, around the 28th, 29th, officers started to panic. So they would go to what we call the fishing hole. 
you've yeah. heard that before. And they would just write whoever a ticket, no matter what. One kilometer over? Something. One kilometer over, making a, a left-hand turn, rolling through a, a, you know, a stop sign in the middle of nowhere. You knew where to go to get your quota. So when I look at that and I look at what's going on right now here is, first of all, with the, the, the Alexa uh, legacy that was left, it was never meant for the administrative uh, uh, prohibition. Really? It was meant for criminal code impaired. If you look at URSU, the Integrated Road Safety Unit, when they first started working on that, when you had, I think it started out at 26 officers on it. Now you're up to about 2,400 officers on it. It was impaired drivers, not I'm talking about criminal code impaired drivers, right. not administrative suspended drivers. Right. So I'm, I'm kind of concerned that it's moved to this because then it, it becomes, you know, how I've described the t ticket quota. Well, I've heard from officers from various traffic units that they'll get pressure from their superiors to meet the Alexa's team quota every year. And they will do that same thing that, you know, you saw officers doing at the end of the month on their traffic tickets, that they will panic and start to issue as many IRPs as possible. They'll work extra shifts and give them out in questionable circumstances because they want to make that quota because they're fearing reprisal from their higher-ups for not getting there. Well, again, common sense. Common sense is just not the officer that's out on the road enforcing law. Common sense comes from the entire organization. And we know uh, that municipal police agencies really look at this a little different than the federal agency, the RCMP, actually do. The, the municipal agencies are more accountable to a, a, a municipal area, such as the Vancouver Police Department, the West Vancouver Police Department. The RCMP, you know, I've, I've often criticized them for their lack of reform and the fact that uh, the accountability goes to a federal agency in Ottawa. Right, there's not that same sort of level of oversight where you have the people who are giving you your funding and the people who are allowing you your continued existence there and seeing what you're doing in the community. No, their, their whole masters are political. Right. They have not established uh, police boards like we have for independent municipal police agencies here where you, uh, the police board looks after policy, hiring and firing the chief and, and budgets to ensure that they have a quality police service. So is that like a suggestion that you would make then to change the process to try and make officers exercise their discretion in a better way? Well, I think the agency has to change. And uh, it, again, no surprise to people that I've been critical of the lack of police reform here in British Columbia as it relates to the federal force operating here in the province of British Columbia. I made uh, it quite clear when I was a solicitor general that I was going to uh, not sign uh, the RCMP renewal contract if in fact they did not fall under the BC Police Act. Right. Now the BC Police Act stipulates that it must be governed by an independent uh, board. So I was looking at that police board concept if the RCMP were going to operate here. I was looking at that police oversight such as the Office of the Police Complaints Commissioner mm -hmm. would oversee uh, the uh, the officers of the RCMP. The, the OPCC would see oversee all provincial officers, all municipal officers operating in the province of British Columbia, regardless of the color of their uniform. Well, 
that's I mean that's a really great step because you have sort of at least a local agency as far as the province is concerned that can then understand issues that are more specific or unique to BC and it, I mean every province has their own um, landscape and their own their own political issues but also their own enforcement issues there's things that are more significant crimes in BC than other places in the country and, and vice versa um, do you take anything from the fact that at the Alexa Awards this year there were more uh, given out than previous years? Like, is, is impaired driving on the rise, or, or is it this, again, trying to meet quotas and, and not using discretion in a common-sense way? Well, you know, be gr- I haven't looked at the general social survey, which is quite accurate uh, to, to give you uh, any idea of whether it's on the rise or not. I Personally, I don't feel that it's on the rise. Okay. I think we 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 probably have the same amount of people that are operating impaired as they were previously. Uh, when you look at some of the tragedies that still take place on the roads here in British Columbia, some of it's related to driving behavior such as impaired driving, such as speeding, such as uh, disobeying traffic control signals, and of course, uh, the law that I brought into uh, British Columbia is the uh, the cell phone law. Uh, known as a cell phone law and even uh, implementing that from a pragmatic point of view of how we could save lives uh, was difficult for me in British Columbia because people wanted to know people in government how much money that would actually bring in well that's not the point of of why and I often uh, told people that for example, distracted driving, the, 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 the cell phone law in the province of British Columbia, the success of that program is going to be through prevention and education, not enforcement and penalties. But look at how, I mean, it was 2010 when it was first introduced. Look at how it's changed since then. The penalties have gone way up and way up and way up again. Again, government is only looking at it from a political lens and how much money we can get into general revenue. And, and I'll give you an example. Of, 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 of this problem I had and the arguments I had with people in government. For example, ICBC. We all know about ICBC mm-hmm. and the, the lack of funds. Well, I can tell you, when you look at the billions of dollars that was pulled out of ICBC on the optional side, um, you, you wonder why all of a sudden our, our uh, rates are going up and all that because government took that money and I remember arguing because ICBC came under me and said, no, that money should stay and it should stay whole. Like if you had a business and you had a retail side and a production side, well, if your uh, retail side was making profits and your production side was not, well, you know, they're saying, well, your production side, we've got to increase whatever uh, the cost of the product there. No, you look at your business as a whole, and that's the way they had to look at ICBC. But instead, government wanted that money into general revenue. So they created this dividend, same with BC Hydro, and put that money into general revenue. So even when I argued at the last minute, and I remember there was an individual in the room that didn't like what I was saying, <laughs> and I, I, I thought he was just going to get up and just whatever, and I was prepared to get up and defend myself. But that, that's you know a bit of a, a, a laughter, laughing point here. But I said, look, just give me a portion of that that I can put into road safety programs around prevention and education. And I often use the example of seatbelts. 
Right. You recall when the seatbelt legislation was introduced, people said, oh, we're not going to. I don't gonna, recall, but. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you're, yeah, you probably weren't around. But let me tell you, my daughter, she's 10 now, mm-hmm. but when she was two or three, when she got into the car, if I did not put my seatbelt on right away, she would scream, Daddy, daddy, put your seatbelt on. So that's where I wanted to get to, for example, on the distracted driving the cell phone issue. It's all through education and prevention. That's where you're going to get the success, not through uh, penalties and some type of punishment. And the penalty for not wearing a seatbelt is like a $129 fine and no points. Look at the compliance. Yeah, the compliance is huge. Massive. So... I, I mean, I assume you've heard the news that David Evie has announced that they want to fix the dumpster fire problem of ICBC that I guess the government itself created by increasing your insurance rates based on having certain high-risk driving convictions on your record. Um, that obviously doesn't fit with what you've been telling us. What would you recommend they do to solve the financial problem? Well, first of all, create ICBC as a whole. Right. And, and I use that you know, metaphorical analogy to describe it as all one, optional side and basic side. And I remember talking to people from the uh, insurance side of it, the private insurance side of it, wanting data from government and you know, picking and choosing which ones they want to insure. Well, government wanted to keep the monopoly on the basic insurance and they would like to have a great or a large percentage of monopoly on the optional side. So they're not going to give up that data uh, whatsoever. But I think, first of all, they have to create ICBC as one, whether and not uh, differentiate between the optional side and the uh, basic side. Secondly, uh, when you look at some of the people that are being penalized here in British Columbia, the wealth of some of those individuals, Mm -hmm. this is just the cost of them uh, driving their fancy cars or you know, various things like that. I mean, I see it a lot, a lot of clients I get, and and they tell me, well, I have to use my cell phone, so I'm not going to change. I'm just going to pay my tickets, and I'm just going to hire a driver if I get prohibited. And if my insurance goes up, that's fine, because I'm making money by using my cell phone. So you're not changing people's behavior when the people can afford to continue the same behavior. They'll pay the high insurance rates. Mm -hmm. Uh, They will pay the fines. Yeah, and it's all just write-offs, business write-offs. Absolutely. And, and they don't think twice about it. But the, the generally, when you talk about the percentage of people that comply with the law and just that odd time that they do, uh, you know, there's no way that deterrent uh, is, is there. Deterrent is not there in uh, many of our laws. Even when you look at our classical punishment under the criminal code, det- deterrent is not there. It's all around prevention and, and we we fail to have policymakers see this and, and the reason why I say this is because the politicians' vision is limited to their elected years, to that four-year cycle, and all they're thinking right. about is getting re-elected. They don't have that long-term vision, and, and you know, again, going back to the seatbelt, having that long-term vision of, of prevention and education, so years down the road, you're not dealing with this problem. They won't look at these issues in that respect. Well, I think that's, you know, especially true in British Columbia right now, where we have a government that's stable-ish in that, you know, one vote the wrong way from a member of their party, one vote the wrong way, and the government could 
collapse and it could go back to the liberals governing BC. So their their hold on government right now is so precarious and so tenuous that that political thought is not just for them in the in the every four year cycle, it's every day. But Kyla, the governments operate similarly. Yeah. Okay, when they're in opposition, they yell and scream and do whatever they can. But when they're actually in <laughs> power, they're very similar. You have hit a nerve for me, Cash, because I'm I'm so frustrated right now with Mike Farnworth, who has your old yes. job. Yes. And all his yelling and screaming in the opposition and, and saying these things are broken about the IRP scheme. but He's not doing anything to fix he's it. He's done nothing. Yeah. I, I feel betrayed. Uh, I feel almost a little bit personally betrayed because they were m- my cases that caused him to say these things. And I don't understand how it's not good politics to say this is broken about a system people seem to want and we're going to fix it to make it better for everyone. There's a few reasons why. Okay, tell me. (laughs) Number one is a lot of the politicians that don't have a strong background in their file are run by the bureaucrats. Okay. The bureaucrats don't want to change. The public service people don't want to change. They've got their careers and that's the way they look at it. A politician becomes overwhelmed because he or she does not have the background from a a knowledgeable point of view to come in and tell the bureaucrats, you're wrong and this is the reason why you're wrong. So that's a fundamental reason why when people get into power, they're the same as their previous government because of the bureaucrats. And a lot of politicians that get into power, they lose their jam. They, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that, that uh, doing the right thing, that, that fierce, assertive type way of let's just do the right thing. Let's not care about, you know, the votes or something like that. But once they get in, they feel that power and guess what they want to stay in power and they want to make sure when that election day comes up that they come back in power so they become very complacent and and just you know you look at the various governments and you see that it's like that and that's the unfortunate part of uh, of politics right now whether that'll change uh, remains to be seen i'm not optimistic that it will change Okay. Well, is there something that you would suggest? Like, I mean, going back to this insurance increases, that's obviously not going to solve the problem of people being bad drivers. It's it's education and um, and behavior correction. What, uh, I mean, what suggestions would you, if you had the opportunity to say how it's going to be, what would you say? What would you right now? happen? Yeah. I'd get into the schools. I would get into our youth right now. There, there may be a, a lost generation, and this is the, 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 the driving habits of the people that are on our roads, but this also can be used around uh, the drug issues that we're dealing with right now, the gang issues that we're dealing with right now. Get into our schools. Get into our youth. You know, the lost generation, you may just have to deal with whatever you have to keep them in check, to suppress it, oppress it as much as you can, but all of that other stuff is going to be accomplished through education and prevention programs with our youth. That is the only way we can get around this. 
But again, that politician has to have a long-term perspective, a long-term vision mm -hmm. in order for this to be accomplished. Well, I think we're seeing that even in the United States right now with the way that a lot of the youth have become really outspoken about the problem they have there with gun violence. Yes. And some politicians are finally getting it. These people aren't voters today but they're voters tomorrow. They're voters in two election cycles or in three election cycles, and you need to work with them to give them what they want and what they need if you want to secure those votes in the future. We often hear the youth are our future. <laughs> they are. It is. Yeah, but okay. you, yeah. it, that, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds so great, though. It, exactly, and that, that's my point. The, the, the politicians, the leaders will say this, and all they are are words. That's all. Right. Okay. Well, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, legislation that was tabled this week, uh, something that I think has been tried before and failed, but they're going to try it again. Um, and that's suspending people's driving privileges on the basis of unpaid family maintenance orders. What do you think about that? Well, people make this comment that driving is a privilege. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not a privilege. You... You, uh, you write a test for your driver's license, you do a road test for your driver's license, you, you, you study, you, you pay for your license, yep. you pay for a vehicle, you pay for the insurance. So, you know, when we talk, I talk about it being a privilege, I'm wondering where that privilege is or a right is. It, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. But trying to collect in other areas by limiting a person's driving ability is so fraught with problems. We tried this in, in Vancouver. You recall the outstanding bylaw tickets for mm -hmm. jaywalkers and others <laughs> in Vancouver. Millions and millions of dollars it got thrown out. There was no way they were going to collect for the city of Vancouver under the family uh, maintenance program that's out there now. Uh, you know, we talked about this before. Again, you're using uh, a different piece of legislation where you actually have power if you want to utilize it correctly to go after the people that are not paying spousal or child support. But why would you use a different legislation, a different system uh, to penalize the person or say, you know what, unless you make your child support payments, uh, you're not going to drive a car. I I'm not sure how that equates. Yeah, and it really makes your entire ability to drive and your, your right to drive contingent on complying with anything at the whim of government. I mean, if, if you give government the total power to cancel licenses because some other area isn't being dealt with properly, it really sort of takes the the seriousness out of having a scheme for licensing. You can comply with everything you need to comply with to get a license. You can pass your tests, you can pay your, your application fees, you can pay to have your license reinstated, you can go and take your photo and not wear a colander on your head or, you know, all of those things you can do, but still your license can be taken away for something completely unrelated to There it. was a point where it could be taken away if you did not pay your SkyTrain ticket. Your SkyTrain ticket is, is... Isn't that it's absurd. incredible? 
It's absolutely absurd. And and how are you supposed to get around if you can't get on the SkyTrain because you haven't paid your SkyTrain ticket and you can't use your car because your license is so, suspended? And, and again, the the insurance uh, brokers uh, that were doing this, they, they were opposed to it. And rightly so, mm-hmm. in my opinion, they were opposed to it. People coming in, trying to renew their insurance, were not going to get their insurance renewed because when they ran it on the computer, they did not pay a particular f- ticket. So why are drivers always the target? I mean, maybe I'm I'm seeing this through a bit of a, a biased lens, but why are drivers always the target when government wants to fix a problem? Easy. There's so many of them. Yeah. There's okay. they're out there. They're out there. And generally, many of them are complying with the law, they don't complain. People are so busy carrying on with their lives or, you know, the congestion we have here. I, I'm, I'm one for alternate modes of transportation uh, here in this region, a, a proper transit system, which is so lacking. Mm-hmm. But government, they, they're addicted to the fact that, oh, we've got drivers out there. We, you know, let's put more cars on the road. Let's build more bridges. Let's build more freeways. Let's, uh, no wonder why. That's their little cash cow that they're going to run to whenever right, they exactly. need something done. If you if you can afford to have a car and put gas in it and pay bridge tolls and pay car insurance. Well, mobility pricing. Oh. How ridiculous is that? That's coming up next. Well, and, and who can afford to live in Vancouver? Who needs to work in Vancouver? Nobody that can afford to actually own a home and live in Vancouver. Well, you got to do some <laughs> cost analysis because if you live in Chilliwack and you're driving in, you pay for your vehicle maintenance, you pay for your gas, now mobility pricing coming in. Boy, <laughs> the move out to Chilliwack didn't necessarily save you a lot of money. I think it's going to drive a lot of, like we're going to see this driving-related issue actually have a lot of consequences overall to trade in the province. It's going to drive a lot of businesses out of downtown cores. It's going to shutter a lot of doors. We should look at some of the experiences in the States. Look what happened in Detroit. Uh, And they're trying to bring that urbanism. Urbanism took place, and they're trying to bring that back into play now. Well, we could just buy Detroit and move everything there, because I think (laughs) it's it's for sale still. Um, Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's a really, really terrible idea. And I feel like drivers in this province often sort of become victims of government because they're seen as this large group of people who are easy to extract cash from. Yes, well, that, you know, going back to what we originally started to talk about, the administrative uh, prohibition, that's a, a big cash revenue source that, that's coming. It's not, it, it's a significant, I should say, not a big one, a significant cash uh, resource coming into government and it's going into general revenue. Well, I read in a Freedom of Information request that they did not actually anticipate the cost that was associated with introducing the scheme as far as the litigation is concerned. No, they didn't. And and so has that inspired them, do you think, to take a harder position in the review hearings or a harder position in changing the legislation to reverse the burden of proof? Absolutely. Absolutely, but but let me just tell you why. Again, going back to uh, the the practices that were put into place, uh, you know the the fact that we were going to remove any legitimate uh, appeal process from an individual that received one of these prohibitions. The fact that we were going to perpetuate the fine because when you look at the you know installing the device into your car and all of that, that it becomes a very very costly venture. I remember the slide presentation that actually showed how much 
uh, a, a administrative prohibition would cost the driver at the end compared to how much it would cost the driver if he or she was charged criminally. It's about the same. Exactly. However, when you're charged criminally, that revenue doesn't come back to right. a provincial government. When you're charged administratively, that revenue comes back to the provincial government. Right, and when you're charged criminally, the cost to the provincial government is a lot bigger. You have to, like, what does it cost for, for a courtroom? You've got a clerk, a judge, a sheriff, and a crown prosecutor, at least, um, possibly a legal aid lawyer. What, what Do you it, know? Do you have a figure for the total cost for a day? Kyla, we did do some analysis of that, and I don't recall what it was. But it's a lot, I imagine. It's a lot. And, and part of this administrative prohibition was to reduce the cost. And I told you about the lenses that were put on. How much money can we get from this? Mm -hmm. How much money is it going to cost us? And those right. are the two lenses that are often uh, put on this. But when you look at the fact that we're, our court system is overwhelmed, our, our courtrooms are jammed, uh, even when we go to, uh, I'm not sure where we are on some type of... Um, a different tribunal to deal with uh, traffic offenses and various oh, things like that. That's in the works, and I, uh, I'm dreading that day. Well, those, there's all, those are all going to be legal challenges, but government should understand, based on their past practices, that these are the issues that are going to come up. So address them at the outset versus having to react to them later on, because when you react to them later on, that's when it's going to become costly. Because I can tell you right now, with the legal processes under this administrative prohibition that are in place right now, government did not anticipate a lot of that. Right. And we're now, what, eight years into having them. There's still a constitutional challenge where decisions outstanding from the courts. There's cases at various stages of appeal in the judicial review process at the Court of Appeal. Uh, when is there an end to the cost of the immediate roadside prohibition scheme? And is the government just sort of biding their time until we get to that point? Well, let's go back to the teacher dispute. How many years was that? Oh How many processes did that go through? How many court systems did that go through? Yeah. I think it was well over 10 years. It was a long time. I mean, I remember it going on when I was in high school and finishing when I'm, you know, five years into being a lawyer. There you go. So uh, it should be no surprise because remember, this is not their money. This is our money. The right. taxpayers are paying this. That's not it. There, it's not coming out of their pocket, and that's part of the reason why they don't care. It's not their money. Yeah, and I guess if you are in government and you are hoping to be reelected and hold on to that power, and you don't have to worry about the you know the concerns of the average taxpayer, and members of government are paid enough of a salary that you're not worrying about paying your rent or how you're going to pay your next month's installment on your car insurance. So it's, I think that we lose a lot of perspective being in that sort of that really privileged position. And that ends up negatively affecting the poorer people in the province. It does. And you look at some of the people that have gone into government uh, that really did not uh, progress or hold positions that they should have. And I could name a few, like Ralph Sultan, brilliant. 
okay, from an economist's point of view. Never did get a high-profile uh, appointment in government for the Liberal government. Moira Stilwell, uh, Gordy Hogue, people like that that have this uh, educational background and practical background in these subjects that would make them experts. They're not usually the ones that will hold a cabinet position. I was fortunate to get in the cabinet position for the time I did yeah. uh, before uh, the shenanigans there, and uh, um, uh, but I was able to do it. But that was part of the reason why, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I decided to go. There were there were certain things that I said I wanted when I went into that, or I, I didn't go in for the the sake of just being a uh, an uh, an elected politician. My ego wasn't that big. <laughs> so how do we change this then? Because you can't vote them out because whoever you vote in instead is just... As as we've, yes, as we're witnessing right thing. now. Yeah, so what, what? how do we change things? Is it changing it by dealing with the police and persuading them to use their discretion in a different way? Is it going back to the youth? But then how do you get the message to the youth? What do we do? The, the, the police uh, largely are not going to change. Okay. Uh, they consider themselves a fourth level of government. We've heard the fact that uh, we would like to move from being so reactive to more proactive. God, we've been uh, banging that drum for so many years. I remember when I started to do a, a study on community policing back in the uh, the early 90s it had already been in place in the United States and traveling around and looking at how we could bring that in. When we started looking at the ComStat program around North America and the success of working with other stakeholders to deal with our problems, it all defaults back to this reactive system in policing. Uh, you know, I of, often say they like to consider themselves a fourth level of, of, of government. Okay. But... Um, Let's not be too uh, hopeful in that particular area because they're they're not going to change. You just dealing with the gang issue, the fact that we have so many tragedies taking place here in Metro Vancouver. Uh, you know, again, the politicians, the current politicians that are in place right now, you have to have an understanding of uh, why they're there and where they want to go uh, well, and I, I be reelected. So it's got to be our youth. Yeah. It well, has would, to be our youth. I would say, though, to his credit, David Eby, I think, is going out on a limb to address this issue with the gang violence and the money laundering and the multiple layers that that is connected to in our economy, our casinos, our insurance fraud. Um, I, I think he is, he seems to be doing something about it more than the last Look at David's time. background. That's true. Yeah, his background he, is... Pivot. pivot. That's when I met him. Pivot. He was standing up for the people that could not stand up for themselves. He challenged the police. He went from pivot to the BC Civil Liberties Association. He the wrote same a guide thing. on how to sue the police. Yes. He always stood up for the underdog. Right. And, and David, I, I quite like David. Uh, he is a friend of mine. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, David is a friend of mine. And I do like him. I think he's uh, been dealt a lot of very difficult files mm -hmm. right now in government. And uh, how he deals with them remains to be seen. Uh, I think he's a bright, young, enthusiastic individual that wants to do the right thing. But we'll see if, if uh, the uh, bureaucrats mm -hmm. and the other politicians get to David. I hope they don't. And I hope David sees the forest through the trees, else he's just going to become one of them. Yeah, and I mean, that would be a real shame because I think 
right now in British Columbia, from from my perspective, looking at this as more of, more of an outside observer and dealing with things on the legal end, he might be the sort of brightest spot of hope that I have for changing the way that, as far as even drivers are used, as a revenue source and a scapegoat and uh, a mechanism to, to punish and enforce rather than educate, he might be the step around that. I hope so. <laughs> uh, There's just uh, well, I, I, I won't make you speak I, for him. Obviously. No, no, I, I hope so. Uh, he's, you know, again, I have uh, a lot of respect. Uh, for David Eby, I have for several years and will continue to have. I just hope he is not overwhelmed right. uh, with the the concerns and the problems. Uh, there are some signs of it that I've noticed uh, from my position, uh, but I hope they mm -hmm. don't come um, to fruition. The signs I think maybe we can see is this is this legislation being tabled about licenses and FMEP and the increased insurance rates, and um, you know it, it might not change in our lifetimes, but hopefully uh, the way that driving law is used to uh, to support government as opposed to support public safety and road safety initiatives is going to change, and I'm really glad that you're still being outspoken on that issue. Well, I'd be outspoken on a lot of issues, <laughs> but again, it's uh, it's all about doing uh, the right thing, not the popular thing, and uh, just realize the lenses that government puts on. They put a political and a financial lens on it. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me on My pleasure. this episode, and I'm sure that we're going to have you back to talk about all sorts of interesting issues. Yeah, we got to talk about the cannabis. Oh, yes. We got to talk yes, about cannabis. Uh, next time, <laughs> we will talk about cannabis. Thank you, Cash. It was a My pleasure, pleasure Kyla. Thank you to Cash Heed for coming on the program and talking to us about all of his experiences as Solicitor General and as the Chief of the West Vancouver Police Department. His knowledge in this area is very, very good and it was amazing to have him on as a guest. I wanted to end the program by speaking for a few minutes about my campaign to become bencher of the Law Society of British Columbia. As a criminal lawyer and as a lawyer dealing with driving law in particular, uh, it's important to me that lawyers who deal with the work that I deal with are represented uh, in the Law Society and that the Law Society knows that we exist. Through Freedom of Information requests, I've discovered that the Law Society is under the mistaken impression that there are not lawyers out there who deal with minor summary offenses like driving while prohibited charges, um, the, uh, the theft under charges, the minor summary offenses that most lawyers are dealing with every day. And the Law Society also believes that there are not lawyers out there who are dealing with files like traffic tickets, like administrative hearings for driving-related matters, the stuff that... I deal with every day, the stuff that my colleagues at Acumen Law Corporation deal with every day. And they believe that no lawyers are willing to do this because they're not willing to do it in an affordable way. And I know that to be not true because, again, I deal with it in an affordable way for my clients every day, and my colleagues at Acumen Law Corporation deal with it in an affordable way for our colleagues every day. And so it's important to me that uh, in the vein of driving law that we have somebody who is who is working with the law society and, and uh, represented on the benchers of the law society who can say that there are 
lawyers who are dealing with this. It's not just an issue of protecting the independence of the bar, which is, of course, very important. Um, it's also an issue of protecting the public, which is one of the things that, that the Law Society and the Benchers in particular are concerned about doing. I've heard stories, including from Paul Doroshenko uh, of my office, about other provinces where paralegals are permitted to do minor summary offense matters, who are permitted to do regulatory bodies like the immediate roadside prohibition equivalents in other provinces who are permitted to appear and represent individuals in traffic court. And, and Paul actually hired a paralegal to represent him on a traffic ticket in Alberta. And all that paralegal did was go and plead him guilty and essentially represent him in a sentencing for the ticket. We don't go and just plead our clients guilty. We go, we negotiate with the officer, we deal with the case, we look at the evidence, we look at the information that uh, the officer has collected and what they're going to be able to present to the court. We have skills in cross-examination that we've developed by going to law school, by learning the law, by our experience as lawyers. And the public is going to be done a disservice if we adopt the model that's, that's followed in other provinces. The public who hires lawyers like myself and the lawyers at Acumen Law Corporation to assist them in traffic tickets is, is not going to be given the service they need. And so it's important to me um, in running for Bencher to make it clear to the Law Society that, that there are lawyers who do this, that they do it in an affordable uh, way for clients, and that they're willing to do it. And we enjoy doing this. I mean, I have a podcast about driving law. That's how much I love it. Um, it's not in my view right to say that paralegals are equipped to do the same work that lawyers do in this area. We went to law school for a reason and protecting what we do is part of protecting the public from getting legal services, in quotes, you can't see the quotes because it's a podcast, but in quotes, getting legal services that aren't the legal services that they need to deal with these types of cases. The other thing that I want to do as a bencher is make the rules and uh, and guidelines for lawyers around sexism more clear. I want to focus on education and uh, and um, allowing people to understand what constitutes sexist conduct, what constitutes conduct unbecoming that is sexist, and make that clearer so that everybody can govern themselves appropriately um, and so that people know what to expect of others and what to expect of themselves. And I've heard a lot of stories from female colleagues of mine, I've had my own experiences, that have sort of led me to believe that it's it's more necessary than other type of conduct on becoming a lawyer to clearly identify what is and what is not appropriate in this area. It's, it's an issue of education and, again, protection of the bar and protecting people not only from acting in a way that undermines their own professional reputations, but also in a way that hurts other people. And I think as a bencher, my my experiences as a woman and, and knowing a lot of female lawyers and especially young female lawyers, I think I can bring a good perspective to that that will help the Law Society and help the benchers make it clearer to the rest of the membership what is and what is not sexist and what is and what is not appropriate. So I hope that any lawyers out there who are in Vancouver or the Vancouver County of the Law Society would consider voting for me. I'm always happy to talk more about uh, the reasons why I want to be a venture, other issues that there aren't time for in this podcast, um, and to uh, to talk about issues maybe that are of concern to you and what you think that I could do to assist you. If you want to talk, you can give me a call. 604-685-8889 is the office line. You can send me an email, 
kyla at vancouvercriminallaw.com or you can check out our website acumenlaw.ca or vancouvercriminallaw.com or contact me on my website kylalee.ca. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning into this episode of Driving Law, and thanks again to our guest, Cash Heed. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on the show, Cash, and I hope that uh, everyone tunes in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. <laughs>